Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Chapter 3, verse 7, and this is a message that I've entitled, Dealing with Chaotic Times. Dealing with Chaotic Times. It will start out reading in verse 7 and go all the way through uh, verse 19 today. It says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he'd healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Okay, there are many parts of this opening paragraph that are familiar to us. Jesus is presented as being famous far and wide. People from everywhere, all these different cities and jurisdictions Come to see Jesus. And we know why they're there. They're there because they want to see Jesus's miraculous power. And Mark makes that abundantly clear. In verse 8, he said, They came to him after they heard all that he was doing. Okay, now, this is not a celebratory statement from Mark or a celebratory paragraph from Mark. You see, to Mark, things had gotten so out of hand that Jesus had to tell his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him in verse 9. This is Mark's way of describing Jesus' popularity, but also of describing the crowd's madness, their insatiable desire to see Jesus. But Jesus Though he helped everyone he could, healed many people, and as a result, people with various diseases were pressing in on Jesus to touch him. And it wasn't only the crowd that pressed in on Jesus, but Mark says in verse 11, the demonic realm as well. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him or took the people that they possessed and caused them to fall down before Jesus and cried out, you are the son of God. James says in James 2 verse 19 that even the demons believe and tremble. They know, verse 11, that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, in response, Jesus strictly ordered the demons not to make him known. You know, demons were hardly qualified to be the announcers of God's royal Davidic king, the ones, who, the ones to announce the presence of the Messiah. So Jesus silenced them in this moment. Okay, again, all of this popularity is designed by Mark to help us see a problem that needs to be solved. Jesus is so popular that he's endangered by the crowd as they press in on him. He has to have an escape 
boat ready. The dark and evil spirits are also disrupting Jesus' ministry. And in the episode we saw last week, the religious leaders are plotting as how to destroy him. All of this in Mark's mind is a problem. How can Jesus go forward doing ministry in conditions like these? You see, up to this point, every atmosphere or environment that Jesus finds himself in, he is in complete control. He goes into the house, and he's in control. He goes into the synagogue, and he's in control. And every conversation that he has, he is in total control. But now things feel like they're out of control. The Pharisees plotting, the demons showing up, the sick pressing in against him, a boat ready for his escape. And the question is, can Jesus get anything done in conditions like these? What is he going to do in response to all this chaos? Now, to me, honestly, it feels a little bit like our current or modern world. The prince of this age is wreaking havoc upon the planet's inhabitants. The citizens of the world, if they had anything they wanted from Jesus, would only want the temporary relief of physical ailments rather than the atonement, the forgiveness of sins that he came to provide. Urgent matters and commitments that make us want to jump on an escape raft to get away from it all seem to abound in our lives during this season. But before you hop on your little getaway boat, the getaway boat of addictive behaviors or inappropriate or illicit content or too much Netflix, give Jesus a chance. Before you spend the day binge-watching a documentary about tigers in captivity, consider the escape route that Jesus provides for you. And so from this passage, I want to show you four things that we can do that Jesus gives to us to help us handle the current chaos of our world. And the first one is this. Number one, go up to God's mountain. Number one, go up to God's mountain. Look at what it says in verse 13. It says, and Jesus, here's his response, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Notice what Jesus did here. He went up on the mountain. Now Luke tells us in his gospel that when Jesus went up on the mountain at this point, he spent all night praying to his father. You see, all through the Bible, mountains are places where God's people meet with God. Moses and Elijah and Abraham interacted with God in special ways on special mountaintops. And of course, as Christians, we understand that the ultimate work that God ever did happened on Mount Calvary in Jesus's cross. And this mountain right here, this mountain was a moment for Jesus to get alone with his father and get the game plan for his future work. Now, questions like, how will I operate under the new conditions of this out-of-control fame and out-of-control opposition? Who should be on my team? How will I train them once they're on my team? And what will they do once I've trained them? All of these questions Jesus brought to his father 
there on the mountaintop. Look, let me encourage you today. Even if everyone else gives in to the pandemonium of our time, even if humanity responds in billions of different ways and directions to this moment, I want you to be a person who goes up to the mountain like Jesus. Go up to the place of prayer. Go up to your Father in heaven. Go up to the place that is unshakable and immovable, the mountain that is God himself. This is what God's children are able to do. We're able to go to God in the midst of trouble. I want you to consider just one of hundreds of psalms that communicate this sentiment. In Psalm 9, verse 9 and 10, it says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is the mountain. God is the stronghold for his people in times of trouble. And we need to, as individuals, go to God's mountain right now. You know, my heart breaks for our world. And my heart breaks for those of you who are directly hit by the impact of this COVID-19 outbreak. You know, as the weeks tick by, some of you might become sick. Or you might know one of the many thousands who will die from this illness. And many more of you will become, or already are, financially distressed as a result of the shuttering of our economy. You might become scared about sickness, discouraged about the conditions of our world, or angry that you've been told you cannot do the work which provides for your needs. But hear me now. We have God. We have his mountain. And we can turn to him as our stronghold in times of trouble. We can put our trust in him and he will not forsake us. In the midst of chaos, let's turn to him. But there's a second thing I wanted you to see, and it's this. Number two, embrace his new humanity. Embrace his new humanity. Notice what happens. Jesus goes to the mountaintop, calls those whom he desired, and it says in verse 14, the first half of it, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Okay, up to this point in Mark, people gathered around Jesus because they were drawn to Jesus. In other words, they got around Jesus because they wanted to be around Jesus. Uh, yeah, he'd invited four fishermen to follow him and to be his disciples, but the crowds consisted of people who decided they wanted to witness Jesus for themselves. They were there because they desired to be there. They wanted to be there. Now, though, something shifts. There on the mountain, amidst all that pressure from people, Jesus called to himself those whom he desired verse 13, and they came to him. And the 13 are these 12. So Mark here presents Jesus as the initiator, the one who calls and the disciples as those who respond to his invitation. The disciples in responding, of course, were not doing Jesus a favor, nor did they choose Jesus. 
Instead, Jesus' summons was laid upon them. They were the ones he wanted, and they came to him. Okay, because there are 12 tribes in ancient Israel, everyone recognizes that it's really significant that Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples or apostles. What's not agreed on, however, is what the selection of the 12 actually means. We all know it's significant, but what is its significance? Okay, some have thought that it means that this group and the church which followed them somehow replaced Israel. Okay, for people with this view, the church is a new Israel. And I think there are many problems with this view, many problems with this view, including the fact that he didn't choose even one Samaritan or one Gentile to be part of this group of 12. Instead, he chose 12 Israelite men, which seems like a really awkward way to say that you're done with Israel and have a new one. But others have thought the exact opposite thing has happened when Jesus chooses the 12, that he's not replacing Israel, but that he's restoring Israel. Most of the tribes at this time were scattered and lost, and the Roman occupation kept them from flourishing as a nation. So some think that Jesus came to refresh Israel back to a place of glory like they had in the Old Testament era, at least at times during the Old Testament era. Clearly, though, Jesus did not restore Israel in the way that many people might have hoped that he would, because after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, in short order, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the people of Israel lost their prominence rather than gain further prominence. No, the church did not replace Israel, nor did Jesus restore Israel, at least not in the ways many people think. Still, the selection of the 12 must have meant something. It seems to me that it's a blend of both views, taking the grain of truth from each and putting them together. In other words, though he didn't replace Israel with the church, Jesus did create a new humanity by his blood, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. And though he didn't restore Israel to past Davidic glory, his coming gave Israel the significance promised to Abraham many years earlier. You see, God had told Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that was fulfilled in Jesus. Forever, Jesus will sit on David's throne. And by the way, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19 that they would join him sitting on 12 thrones, judging the nation of Israel forever. So through the 12, Jesus communicates that God's kingdom has come. He created a new people who are connected to the old people. His kingdom is here. As you think about Jesus choosing the 12, forming this new group, this new humanity, I want you to see something. I want you to see how it was only the call of Jesus that united these men. What in the world did these men have in common with each other? Here's the answer. Jesus. Only Jesus is who they had in common. You see, the church is a radical group of people from all over the world. What we have in common is a who. His blood, Jesus' blood, beckoned us 
By his stripes, we've been healed. His cross has drawn us and called us. And because of him and his gospel, we are one. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like we're one, but it is true nonetheless. There was an English pastor named Robert Chapman. He was around during Spurgeon's day. Spurgeon actually called him the saintliest man I ever knew. And he said this about the unity of the church. He said, yes, God made his church one. He committed to us the earthen vessel, a representation of the unity. But he held in his own hand the golden bowl. We on earth have smashed the earthen vessel, but the golden bowl is still intact in the hand of God. We are one, whether we see it or not, God sees us as one. And look, as you process the craziness of our times, I pray you would see the value of this new humanity that the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, baptized you into. The disciples came out from the masses, away from the unclean spirits, and went up to Jesus. They collected around Jesus, but they were together, and the only thing binding them together was Jesus. And I've been praying for the portion of our church at Calvary Monterey that drifted in and out of the church facility week after week without any true connection to God's people. As the years ticked by, I'm sure that some even made conscious decisions to keep all other believers at arm's length. But this is not the disciples' way. Instead, disciples come together around Jesus, and we do our best to love one another. And one day when we get to heaven, we'll see the multicultural, multinational, multilingual nature of God's glorious church. But let's strive for it today. Let's come together as a community and be centered around Jesus. Listen, church, during this time, during this season, as much as you're able to, pursue your church family. But number three, let's move on in our passage and think about another thing that we can do to help us deal with the times of chaos. It's this. Number three, enter into this life-changing relationship. Number three, enter into this life-changing relationship. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 14 all the way into verse 15. It says that Jesus called them to himself, named them the 12 that would become apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Okay, it's important to notice what Jesus called these original disciples to do. And part of the reason it's important is because it's what he's called every later disciple or follower of Jesus to do as well. Mark said he appointed 12 so that they might, verse 14, be with him. And after they were with him, he would then send them out to preach and cast out demons. But the first move was to be with him. Okay, the idea is that dramatic results come from being with Jesus. Like atomic energy, Jesus is powerful. 
It's an atomic relationship that we have with him. It's life-giving to be in a relationship with Jesus. He took these 12 and developed them into world changers. Okay, we can find examples of this all throughout the Old Testament. Remember Moses? You know, there were times where Moses would go to what was called the tent of meeting, where he would speak with God like a man speaks with his friend face to face, and his face would begin to reflect or radiate God's glory. He radiated what he just experienced with God. And when he came out of the tent, at least partly because of embarrassment that the glory would fade from his face, Moses began the practice of covering his face after he went into the tent. And our relationship with Jesus is meant to do something similar, but from the inside out and with a permanence unfamiliar to Moses. In other words, our relationship with Jesus changes us permanently from the inside out. There's no fading glory, as was the case with Moses. Another example of this comes from David's life. You know, when Goliath stood for 40 days, challenging the men of Israel to a fight, a representative to come in war against him, all the men in Israel declined that invitation. Finally, though, young David arrived, and he was stirred up, and the rest is history. But then David began collecting men to himself. And many of those men that he collected to himself went on to win incredible victories that were similar to the battle that David won over Goliath. You know, brave exploits, bold stands. They even killed other giants, very similar to Goliath. The idea is that through interaction with David, David's men became like David. They were turned into giant killers because they had spent so much time with the original giant killer. Jesus, he does the same for his disciples. They spent time with him and they were changed to become like him. Years later, Peter and John, who at one point were arrested for Jesus' sake, they boldly preached to their captors, and, they, and this is what was said about them in Acts 4, 4, verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus wanted for his men, and it's exactly what he wants for us. Is that the description of your life, that you have been with Jesus? And notice this right now. Jesus is not one of the 12. There's Jesus, then there's the 12. You know, it's real similar to the ancient Israelites. They had 12 tribes, and in the wilderness, they would gather and camp around the tabernacle. You see, God was there in the center, and Jesus, he is the one who came and tabernacled with us, God in the flesh who tabernacled with us, and the disciples appear now gathered or camping around him. So we must do the same. Let's spend time in his word, not as religious code, but to hear his voice. 
Did you know that God has spoken right here in his word? His word is meant to teach us and to lead us. And then after getting into his word, we can talk to him in prayer. This is how we can spend time with Jesus. Listen, no other way needs to be invented. You don't need to write down what you think he's communicating to you. You don't need to get in touch with your inner voice. You don't need to find an artistic expression that helps you feel his presence. No, none of that. You need to study his word and spend time in prayer with him. Spending time with him in this way, it will change you. Money back guaranteed. All right, let's think now about the last and final way in this passage I wanted to point out to you that we can deal with the chaos of our times. Number four, and lastly, follow their example. Follow their example. Let's read it in verse 16 to the end of our section today. It says that Jesus appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, Verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so this is what I've said. Follow their example. What do I mean by following their example? Okay, first, I want you to notice all the different types of men that Jesus called. You have fishermen and a tax collector and a political zealot. And as the pages of the story unfold, and as the rest of the New Testament is written, it becomes obvious that Jesus used different types of people. In other words, he looked for common folks, everyday people to be his representatives. But also notice the way that many of these men Uh, embraced anonymity in their desire to follow and embrace Jesus. Uh, We know a lot about a few of them. You know, for instance, we know about Peter, the leader who would one day at the Roman centurion named Cornelius' house use the keys that Jesus had given him and open up the gospel to the Gentile world. Uh, His birth name was Simon, but Jesus gave him a nickname, gave him a new name, Uh, called Peter, which means rock. I think it was a loving nickname indicative of the time that Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. That statement is a rock-like foundational statement upon which the church is built. And so Jesus called Peter the rock because of that rock-like doctrine he confessed. And we know about others like James and John. They were brothers. They were part of Jesus' inner circle with Peter. Uh, James was the first apostle to die for his faith. John outlived all the other apostles, it seems. And he wrote a bunch of scripture. He wrote the book of John. He wrote a few letters bearing his name. And he wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of God's word. Uh, One time, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume people. Another time, they asked their mother to ask Jesus if they could sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he came into glory. So Jesus gave these guys a nickname. He called them in verse 17, Boanerges. It means sons of thunder. Now, I've read a lot of scholars talking about this, and so many of them just can't imagine Jesus with a sense of humor 
And so they just can't imagine that this nickname, Boanerges, has any humor behind it at all. They think that it would be way too mean for Jesus to call them Boanerges in any kind of humorous way. I don't share that opinion. I see Jesus smiling and saying, okay, got it. Sons of thunder, simmer down for a second. Just chill. Okay, but the reality is that though we know about Peter and James and John, uh, most of these men are anonymous to us. You know, we'll hear about those three quite a bit, but we'll hear only occasionally about guys like Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and of course, Judas Iscariot. But Mark specifically will not even mention for the rest of his book, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, or Simon the Zealot anymore after this list. And though church history has made attempts at tracking all of their movements after Jesus' ascension, we really don't know with certainty what each one of these men did or where they went. We merely know that they were involved in Jesus' mission. Now, believers today need to embrace what these men are. They're anonymous to us in so many ways. Though one of Jesus' apostles, though they'll rule on those thrones forever, a lot of what they did is unknown to us. And I think we need to embrace that kind of anonymity. We can be used by God without being greatly known by others. Too many, I think, have sought service to Christ as a means to be known or a means to be well-respected or highly esteemed. But you can't use Jesus. You can't use ministry for ego. Because if you do it correctly, it's one of the most humbling experiences a human could possibly endure. You must embrace instead the possibility that no one will know you, that no one will thank you, and that no one will encourage you in your service to Jesus. Is that why you're serving Jesus? So that people will know who you are? No, we serve at his pleasure. And one day, Jesus' thanks will be all the reward we need. But you know, there's another thing about these disciples as we seek to follow their example it's that they went out preaching and casting out demons. In other words, they did this because Jesus sent them and gave them authority to do the work. In other words, they got all the power that they needed for their task from Jesus. Just regular guys who had been with Jesus and he empowered them. And what I want you to know is that Jesus Christ can use your life. He's looking for people who are willing vessels People he can fill and empower by his spirit for the mission of the kingdom. This means you. He's thinking about you. He's calling you. But too often, I think, we carry these limiting beliefs in our minds and in our souls that get in the way of God using our lives. We think that it's all on our shoulders. And so we often dismiss the possibility of God using us for his kingdom. And when we think this way, we forget about the power of God and that he's looking for willing instruments. I've even seen many parents who have refused to support their Christian children in pursuing the work of the Lord, the ministry for their lives because of fears about provision, because of fears about an insecure future. But we must believe that God can use our lives or the lives of even people that we know. And if we don't have that belief, then we will always limit what God can do. My sister has this golden lab 
that I think is a good example of a limiting belief that holds her back. Uh, she has in her backyard, my sister does, a, a porch that leads down five or six stairs to their backyard area. And their dog, Charlie, uh, is, has a, a little doggy door that she'll go out of onto that porch, down the stairs, and then run around in the backyard. And for a long time, she would go down the stairs, run around in the backyard, and then when she was ready to come inside, would climb up the stairs and go through the doggy door and come back inside. But there, this moment began to develop in Charlie where she began thinking that she needed help to get back up the stairs that she had previously gone down. And so this hilarious thing started unfolding where she would stand at the bottom of the stairs that she had just gone down a few minutes earlier, barking and barking and barking until somebody in the family would finally come down to the bottom of the stairs, give her a little nudge and help her get carried up one or two stairs, and then she would feel confident to finish the job herself. This was a limiting belief that she held. I can't make it up these stairs. And now, some, belie some limiting beliefs are actually true and legitimate. You know, I have a limiting belief that I cannot fly. And that limiting belief has kept me from unnecessarily jumping off of buildings and trying to fly. Some limiting beliefs are good. But oftentimes, believers carry beliefs in their hearts that limit God, where they don't put him into the equation. They think that God could not use their lives, but instead God wants us to put him in the equation, believe that just as he used these original disciples, he can also use our lives. Let's believe in him and know that God can use us and submit to him. Church, these men, they were made strong for a strong work by the power of a strong God. And I think we need to allow ourselves to be strengthened by the same God today. For now is a time, this season that we're in, when strong believers must become usable for God's hands. Let me close with the words of Paul. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Let's imitate these men by trusting that Christ will give us the strength we need for these difficult days. Okay, let me conclude by giving to you a handful of applications. Number one, as Jesus went up to the mountaintop, and as we think about that, I would just say it like this. Defend a time with God. Defend a time with God. Defend that moment that you get to spend time with God alone and fight for it. Defend it with all your might. Number two, initiate prayer meetings online. Initiate prayer meetings online. If one of the things we should do is embrace the new humanity that we're in, you might want to reach out to some of your Christian friends or family and say, hey, let's get together in a little online video meeting and let's say prayers together in our separate dwelling places to the singular God that we love and worship. Number three, reach out to others in the church. Reach out to others in the church. A word of encouragement. This is part of the reason why I said in my challenge that we should give something genuine every day 
day. It might be a word of encouragement. It might be finances. It might be a scripture. It might be time, but we should give something to those in our lives every day. Number four, see the value of being with Jesus before doing for Jesus. I know some of you are doers. You love to be active. You love to get the job done, but see the pattern that Jesus set for his disciples. They were with him first, then did things second. And this is a continual thing that he calls us to be with him. And then he sends us out in power to get the job done. But number five, see how doing for Jesus extends from being with Jesus. In other words, there are some of you who just spend all of your time thinking about being with Jesus without concluding that being with Jesus is to lead you to the end of doing things in Jesus's name. So see how being with him should lead you to being empowered by him for the work that he has for your life. And number six, and lastly, start the Calvary Monterey Shelter in Place Challenge tomorrow morning. Let's go for it. Let's be people of God during times that are uncertain because we know our certain God. Church, let me end by reading to you again from 2 John verse 2. I miss you so much. John said, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. I've been thankful for many, many years for the technology at our disposal by which we can extend the ministry God has called us to do. But I long for the day when we can also gather face to face. Let me pray for you, church, before I hand you off to Riley and Chesley with some concluding thoughts. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, I pray for anyone out there right now that has listened to this teaching and their hearts are stirred. Lord, would you enable and empower them? Lord, let your calling from your mountaintop descend from that mountain into our lives, Lord God. Let us sense it and know and respond to it in the affirmative that, yes, I will do what the Lord has asked me to do. Thank you, Lord, for the calling to be with you. Thank you, Lord. And if you're out there today listening to this and you don't yet know Jesus and would like to, I have good news for you. He died on the cross in your place and in my place after living a perfect life that you could not live and I could not live. He took in the judgment of God into his body so that we could be unjudged by God forever, forgiven by God forever, and part of God's family. And what you need to do today, if you want to be part of God's family, is believe that Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection are the only way for you to be made right with God. You can't be good enough for God. You can't attain him by any other means, but you must believe in the son whom he sent and testified of through prophets and scriptures and miracles and the resurrection. So if that describes you today, pray in your heart like this, say, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Bring me into your family. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. And Lord, I pray now that you would come to live inside of me and help me to live my life for you. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things together.
Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.